Well, hello everyone. It's good to be back with you. Um, this is a re-recording of Psalm 19. We were uh, unable to uh, get the actual recording of Psalm 19 uh, when I preached it a few weeks back. And so uh, now I have the opportunity to preach it again uh, to, to you all. So if you're wondering uh, if uh, why this why this uh, sermon sounds familiar, there's a reason. It's, it's because it is a re-recording, but we just wanted to make sure that we got this out there uh, for those of you who either missed the sermon or just wanted to listen to it again. Um, and uh, so anyways, we're thankful to the Lord for technology, for how uh, we are able to uh, record sermons so that we can listen to them again. And um, also, we're just grateful for the fact that we get to see each other now, uh, especially uh, in, in light of this recent news that um, that things are slowly starting to open up and that we'll probably be back to uh, relative normal um, soon in, on June 15th. We praise God for just all that he's doing there, too. So I just would like to encourage you all to uh, continue to be safe, but you know, to also... Um, begin thinking about how we're going to return, be, begin thinking about how you're going to return to church and and how uh, you would like to uh, not only be served by other people, but how would you how would uh, how you would like to serve others uh, in the church. So for some of you, uh, you know, you could be helping us in terms of ushering. Uh, if, if you uh, would just like to just welcome people back and say hello, uh, make them feel welcome. Uh, just write their names down on the on the attendance sheet so that we can have contact tracing. Um, or uh, perhaps uh, if you are interested in uh, serving on our AV team, there's a, definitely a lot of need there to be able to uh, continue to make sure our services are able to be heard by all who are in attendance, but also so that we could serve those who might still be stuck at home, who still need the live stream. It's an opportunity for all of us to serve. And uh, of course, you know, we'll, uh, as we are reopening, we're trying to do everything as safely as possible. We wear our masks, we social distance, we have uh, hand sanitizer, we contact trace, we have all that kind of stuff. And so uh, just, yeah, would like to encourage you all to consider how you might begin thinking about returning to church. Well, with that being said, we're going to proceed in our recording to Psalm 19. Okay, Psalm 19, and the word of God reads this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from a teat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, allowing for us to come to your word again, to listen to it, to hear it preached, and uh, to consider what it has to say and how we ought to respond in light of it. We pray that you would be glorified as we meditate on your word and as we tr- as we try and see how we can allow for your scriptures to have prominence in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would not just be listeners of your word. But we pray that we'd be, we would be doers of your word. We pray that we would be willing to do what your word has to say, regardless of how we might feel. Because, Lord, your words are truth. And truth is what matters. We pray that we would live by the truth, that we would be people marked by the truth, and um, that we would be truthful people. Thank you, Father, uh, for your word, and we pray that you would bless this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, about a year ago, our country shut down over fears about COVID-19. And the fears that many in our world had regarding the virus was due to the fact that COVID-19 was a novel virus or a new virus. And as you watch TV and you clicked on every article that you could find to get more information, undoubtedly you discovered that there were some news sources that were more credible than others. And as we were making these evaluations of these news sources and their content, we were making an evaluation of sufficiency. Was this information that we were given good enough? Was it credible enough? Was it accurate enough for us to believe or did we need to turn to another source? Do we need something better? Now, the issue of sufficiency is an issue that has particular relevance to Christians today, especially in the biblical counseling world. Was the Apostle Peter right in 2 Peter 1.3 when he said that we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or do we need to appeal to additional sources of authority to respond to issues that that may arise in our lives? For example, in order to understand who God has made me to be, do the scriptures help me understand who I am? and who God wants me to be? Or do I need something like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram to understand who I am and how I can serve the body? Granted, the Bible does not specifically address every issue in our lives. For instance, there are no specific passages about who you should date or what kind of career you ought to pursue, but it does provide us with wisdom and principles to deal with situations that come up in our lives. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because the word of God is living and active, it does not need updating. It does not need to stay up with the times because it is constantly relevant, since the living and unchanging God has never been and will never be outdated. As a result, Christians can be confident in what we've been taught in the scriptures. We don't need to give authority over to people or worldly philosophies to understand who we are and what God wants us to do in this life. The word of God is wholly sufficient. Now, while we might say that we believe the Bible is valuable and important to our lives, the question we must ask ourselves is if we live as if we believe the Bible is valuable. In our lives, right? Do we treat it as valuable, or is this just the book 
that we go to during our worship services? Is this just the book that lies around our house collecting dust on the shelf or on the couch or on the nightstand until it's time for us to go to church or until we realize after a particularly long struggle with sin or a particularly dry time uh, of, of life, we realize, oh, you know what? I haven't done my Bible reading in a while. Is that how we live? Or do we actually go to the Word of God like we love it and we want more of it because we love God? Our aim in this evening's sermon is to remind ourselves of the value of God's Word as we examine three reasons why Christians ought to value God's sufficient Word more in our lives. Three reasons why Christians ought to value God's sufficient Word more in our lives. And the first reason that we ought to value God's sufficient word more in our lives is because creation's revelation is insufficient. Creation's revelation is insufficient. Now, Psalm 19 is a psalm that is meant to instruct the people of Israel. And we see that in the subtitle, or what Bible scholars call the superscription to the psalm which uh, identifies it as a psalm of David that is for the choir director. This psalm was a psalm that was used in worship to teach people something. And in this particular case, it is meant to teach people about the superiority of God's word, <coughs> excuse me, over what can be generally known about God through our observations of creation. And that's the point that Paul brings up in Romans 1.18 to 32. And Romans 10, 18, when he makes it clear that the created world around us has provided the evidence of God's existence to everyone who has ever lived. And this is something that we call general revelation. Now, how does creation make God known to us? Well, verse 1 says this, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So David notes that the heavens and the skies proclaim the glory of God and make his work known to all. And we don't often see this proclamation, right? Because living here in San Francisco, we don't get clear skies due to the fog and due to the light pollution. But when we head to the mountains for our retreats, especially those sections of the mountains that don't have a lot of uh, lights from the buildings and, and street lamps and whatnot, Right, we actually get to see the stars. And it's only when we have this unobstructed view of the stars in the night sky that we really see and appreciate the wonder of what God has done in creation. When we look at the stars, we remember how small and insignificant we are in comparison to the rest of creation. Right, these stars that hang in the sky, right, they are so, so far away. God has placed each one of them in their place. Right? They all exist because he put them there. And despite the fact that these giant, ginormous stars are placed in their, in their setting by God, are created by God, despite that fact, right? as David observes in Psalm 8, God is mindful of us. God chooses to save us who are nothing compared to the stars. What we see in space and in the skies testify boldly and unapologetically that God made them. But not only that, we also see in verse 2, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So every day, 
It's not just during the nighttime, but every day when we look at the skies, the world around us profusely tells us of what God has done. James Montgomery Boyce says that the witness of the days are like a gushing spring that continues to pour forth the sweet, refreshing waters of revelation. This activity extends towards the evening as they reveal a different side to what God has done. As we can see in these first two verses of Psalm 19, the skies are not silent in their witness to what God has done. Their witness is obvious. You can't miss it. You might grow callous towards it. You might take it for granted, but everything around us tells us of the glory of God. Verse 3 says this, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. You see, the testimony of God's wonderful works are obviously not verbal speech. If we heard the skies speaking to us, I'm pretty sure we'd all be pretty scared. Because that's not a a normal experience for us, for a a, a voice just to ring out and, and say things to us. Right? That'd be really weird. We'd be really scared. And yet, despite the fact that there is no audible voice of witness to God's glory in creation, there doesn't need to be an audible voice for the whole earth to understand what God has done. The heavens and the sky's witness are a universally understood witness. People who do not speak the same language, they can understand what God is revealing about himself in the creation so that we are all without excuse. Verse, uh, the end of verse 4 says this, In them, that is, in the skies, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a, bar- a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the word in them, it refers to the skies. And this is an artistic way of describing how the sun goes away at night. Right? Um, what we see here in terms of you know, the sun uh, moving through a circuit is an artistic way of describing how the sun goes away at night. It's as if God has placed a tent for the sun to go into in the evenings. And when it's morning, the sun leaves its tent to be visible to all with its joy. Right? Whenever we see... Um, a depiction of the sun in cartoons, uh, or uh, if you remember that show, Teletubbies, right? The sun, it's bright, it's bubbly, it's smiling, it's joyful, and it's just like a groom leaving his room uh, on the morning of his wedding day. Right? This is a confident groom who doesn't have to have any nerves about his wedding day, but this is a groom who is just so excited. Right? He's so excited that he's just beaming from ear to ear from the moment he gets up. And it's the sun's joy that points people to the glory of God. Now, David, he also likens the sun to that of a strong man or a warrior who enthusiastically runs the path before him. Now, I don't exactly relate to that uh, illustration because I don't think I've ever joyously set out to run in my life. But the point here is that there is a great excitement. There's a great enthusiasm as the sun begins its journey. There is no hesitation as the sun gets started on its course right away. It's a joyful servant of its creator rather than a deity to be worshipped. And its presence is noted by all 
not only in what we can see in the sky, but also in the heat that we feel. Living in San Francisco often means that there are going to be days when we don't see the sun right, due to the fog or due to the clouds. And yet we know the sun is there because we still feel its relative heat. Now, some of you will probably uh, be tempted to push back against that statement, especially when it's cold. Uh, right now where I'm recording, it's uh, the thermostat is reading 58 degrees. It's pretty chilly in here. But what we have to realize is that the relative heat that we feel is the evidence of the sun's existence. Right? David's point here is that when the sun is moving through the sky, everyone feels its heat. Because the heat, the relative heat that we have, even you know, no matter how little it is, the heat that we have is, is not from our plan, planet's molten core, but it's from the presence of the sun. So as we look at these first six verses, we get the message loud and clear that creation, particularly the skies and what is in them, are a continual witness to God's existence. Yet at the same time, we recognize that the witness of the skies, it's not very specific. They may tell of the glory of God. They may tell of the works that he has accomplished. But knowledge of those things alone does not deal with the crucial problem that every human being has. And that the crucial problem that every, every human being has is sin, right? And, and the fact that we're incapable of saving ourselves from our own sin. You see, creation's witness, its revelation of God, though it is beautiful, though it is great, is insufficient. It cannot save. It is therefore no surprise that Paul says later in Romans 1, 18 to 32, that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in that unrighteousness because they know God, but do not honor him as God or give thanks. While we as Christians can be grateful for the testimony of God that we see in creation, while we can give thanks to him every time we go out on a hike, visit the beach, go stargazing, and so on and so forth, we must remember that worshiping God does not stop at enjoying his creation. Right, if we are to be saved from our sins, uh, we need more than the creation's insufficient revelation of God's existence. We need God's word to explain how we can be made righteous and how we can live righteous. And that leads us to the second reason Christians ought to value God's sufficient word more in our lives. And that's because Yahweh's perfect word is sufficient. Yahweh's perfect word is sufficient. Now, David, he abruptly shifts from speaking about the general revelation of God to talking about Yahweh's word, which is what we call special revelation. While this might seem out of place, David purposefully transitions here to highlight our need for God's word and to show the superiority of God's word. Notice how David clearly sw switches from God's general name in verse 1 to God's personal name, Yahweh, here in verse 7 and following. While creation only revealed the existence of God, any culture can claim that their God created the earth. In fact, there is evidence that ancient cultures had creation stories, which explained the world around them through the actions of their gods. However, David makes it very clear that only one God created the universe, and it was not the deities of the nations. It was Yahweh. It was Yahweh. And how do we get to know Yahweh? 
although he has made himself clearly known through his creation, he reveals himself more completely in his word. His word tells us more about him. And David demonstrates the sufficient power of Yahweh's word as he describes it with six different adjectives and highlights their effects upon those who hear them and live by them. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so Yahweh's word is first described as the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh. The law of the Lord is not a reference solely to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but it's a reference to the word of God as a whole. Yahweh's law is described as perfect. It lacks nothing, and it contains no errors. It is perfect as God is perfect, and it is therefore able to revive the soul. It makes a soul which is spiritually dead, spiritually alive. Yahweh's perfect word is able to give us spiritual life when God graciously uses his Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts. So we believe what his word says and respond in faith. He then graciously forgives us our sins so that we are no longer lost in our sins. Back in the Old Testament, this righteousness was given to those who placed their faith in God and turned away from their sins. But following the coming of Jesus Christ, salvation is given to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and turn away from our sins. Now, second, David describes Yahweh's word as a sure testimony. What Yahweh says about himself is trustworthy. God doesn't need to be fact-checked, for he is the standard of truth. And no matter what angle people might use to try and discredit God, they will not succeed in proving him false. Instead, what they prove is that they do not know him or understand what he has revealed in his word. And as such, David describes the effect of God's truthful testimony as making wise the simple. In other words, God's truthful testimony about himself instructs those who are untaught about him, those who are unsaved or those who are foolish since they don't have God's wisdom, so that they might have a saving faith in God. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So third, we see that the precepts of Yahweh are right. These are the specific instructions of Yahweh on how to live life and how to treat others. The instructions of Yahweh are morally upright, and as such, those who live by these righteous instructions are able to have hearts which rejoice in God's righteousness. So when we live obediently to God's word, our hearts rejoice because we're pleasing God. We have no need to fear, and we have no need to be anxious because we know that we are doing what is right. Now related to Yahweh's precepts are number four, Yahweh's commands. Yahweh's commandments or decrees uh, are similar to his instructions. But here, David emphasizes the authority of what Yahweh says. Yahweh's commandments are pure. They are without blemish. They're without fault. His commandments are pure because he is pure. And as such, his commands enlighten the eyes. They give sight to our blind eyes and help us understand the truth. And so consequently, they teach us how to live righteously to please Yahweh. 
Now, before we identify the fifth description of Yahweh's word in verse 9, we want to quickly notice that David changes his pattern of describing Yahweh's word here. In verses 7 and 8, David described Yahweh's word with an adjective, and then he uses a participle to describe its effect on the people. Now, here in verse 9, there is no description of how it affects people, but instead what we see are characteristics of the word. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The fear of Yahweh is also understood as reverence for God. It's the respectful fear of God that results from knowing what God's word says about him. And this fear of Yahweh is described as clean. Now, some translations translate this word as pure, but the best translation of this word is ceremonially clean. We're not talking about cleanness in terms of lack of germs, but cleanness similar to how priests were ceremonially washed clean before they entered into the presence of God to serve him. The fear of the Lord that results from knowing God's word produces in us a ceremonial cleanness that allows us to be before God forever. Now, finally, six, Yahweh's judgments or his decisions are described as true. And that is significant for us as we remember that it is through the truth that we are sanctified. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, Jesus prays that God the Father would sanctify us in the truth. What is the truth? God's word is the truth which will sanctify us. And additionally, we see that Yahweh's judgments are not only true, but they are also altogether righteous. They can also be understood in uh, it can also be understood in the sense that God's judgments, His word, can make people completely righteous when we hear it and believe in God. In Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed in Yahweh's words, and Yahweh credited Abraham with righteousness. The New Testament affirms this as Peter confirms in 1 Peter 1.23 that we've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. And this wonderful characteristic of Yahweh's word leads David to say of God's judgment, verse 10, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You see, unlike the insufficiency of general revelation, which only tells us of the existence of God, the special revelation of the word of God can deal with our sin problem. Yahweh's word is sufficient not only in telling us that he exists, but also in revealing our need for salvation. How can we be saved and how we can live lives that please him? And this precious value that is found in Yahweh's sufficient word, truly is better than the purest gold that we might ever find, or the sweetest honey that we might ever taste. The sweetest, the sweet satisfaction of being right with God has no comparison to the finest gold or the sweetest honey. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures that we've been given by God is so, so precious. These scriptures, they regenerate our souls so that we might be spiritually alive. They make us wise unto salvation. They teach us more about God and allow for us to rejoice in him. And they are ultimately able to make us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ so that we can be with God forever. The sufficient power 
of Yahweh's perfect word to save us from our sins and to make us righteous before God should cause us to love God's word more than we currently do because it actually has the power to change our lives. And that leads us to our third reason that Christians ought to value God's sufficient word more in our lives, and that is because Yahweh's perfect word fuels our worship. Yahweh's perfect word fuels our worship. So in light of how David describes the perfect word of Yahweh in verses 7 through 10, David shows us how we ought to respond to Yahweh's sufficient word. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now, as David thinks about the different qualities of Yahweh's word, he responds in worship. He responds in prayer. Now, while the scriptures certainly give us life and help us please God, they also help us by warning us of sin. As Paul notes in Romans 7, 7 through 8, the law is good because we would not have known sin if the law did not teach us what sin is. But once we knew what sin was, our sinful hearts rebelled against the law and desired sin. God can use his word to warn us from committing sin or even to convict us of sins we had no idea we committed. Now going back to Psalm nineteen eleven, David reflects on the blessing and the great reward which comes from keeping God's word. And the greatness of the reward is not necessarily the quality Although blessings and reward from God are, of course, great in quality, it's not like uh, God gives us blessings that are, equ- are the equivalent of gifts from the Dollar Tree. But what we have here is abundant reward, a large quantity of reward. And to name a few of these rewards, we receive God's blessing, we receive fellowship with one another, we receive the praise of our master, we receive crowns, and best of all, we get God himself. While our motivation to obey God should be primarily because we love him and want to please him, God is pretty clear that he also wants us to seek after his rewards and blessings. David continues his prayer in verse 12 when he writes, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So when David prays, who can discern his errors? He makes note of the fact that at times it is difficult for us to recognize our sin. And sometimes we can be in sin and we don't even know that we're in sin. And if it's difficult for us to recognize the mere presence of sin in our lives, is it any wonder that it's even more difficult for us to understand why we committed those sins? Or many times we would not even know how to answer a question of why we sin because we are unaware of the fact that sin lurks in our hearts. We are unaware of the desires in our hearts that have become sinful demands that must be fulfilled. We often have no idea why we sin, which is why we need God's help to understand the sin that is in our hearts. So in light of the multitude of sins that we might not be aware of in our lives, David prays that Yahweh would acquit him of hidden faults. David recognized that there will be instances where he might unknowingly sin. Therefore, he appeals to God's compassion and asks for forgiveness of those sins as well. While it is true that we sin specifically and that our confession of sin should be as specific as possible, there are times where we might be sinning against others and we don't even know it. Our God, though, is merciful to completely forgive us of these sins in salvation. 
He doesn't only forgive us of the sins that we are aware of, but he forgives us of all our sins. And so additionally, David prays in verse 13, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. David's request for God's help to be kept away from presumptuous sins is a request that God will protect him from committing willful sins, sins which are a deliberate and prideful display of rebellion against what God's word has clearly said. And there are times where we know sin is wrong, we know that what we are tempted to do is wrong, and yet we choose to do it anyway. Either because we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to put in uh, the effort to fight sin, or just because we presume, we assume that God forgives us anyway. Notice that is not David's attitude here. And he understands the strong pull of temptation, and he prays that God would help him stay away from these willful sins, these presumptuous sins. And he asks specifically that God would help him so that these bold and rebellious sins would not rule over him, um, but uh, and, and that idea of not ruling over him, that, that should uh, ring some bells for you. Right? Where have we heard similar language to that before? And this is similar to Genesis 4-7 when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for Cain. So what does God say to Cain? Sit back, Cain. I'll take care of you so that you don't sin. No. Right? He tells Cain that Cain must master his temptation. Or he must master his sin. He must not allow for it to rule over him. And so what we see is that there is personal responsibility involved in the fight against sin. When David asks that sin not rule over him, he is not asking God to take responsibility for the sin that he is supposed to fight. Right? Um, David's not saying, God, this is yours. Right? You got this. Uh, God, obey for me. God, uh, you know, take care of this for me. Right? He's not saying that. He's asking God for help to fight sin because uh, he wants to be blameless and, and so that he can be forgiven of the great quantity of sins that he's guilty of. And so uh, he closes his prayer saying this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David asked God for help to glorify God in his life. And in contrast to the heavens and the skies whose speech about God is inaudible, David prays that his words, which are audible and intelligible, would be words that are acceptable in God's sight. And he additionally prays that the meditations of his heart, his inner thoughts, which drive how he feels and how he acts, might be acceptable in Yahweh's sight. Why? Because David loves Yahweh. He knows that Yahweh is his rock. Yahweh is his shelter, his refuge, and the one who redeemed him from his sin debt. And as a result, he wants his entire life to be lived as an act of worship that responds to the wonderful power of Yahweh's word. And so as we grow in our knowledge of of the Lord and allow ourselves to be changed by his word. Let this also be our heart's prayer. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to our God, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. 
because of the sufficiency of Yahweh's word, you and I do not have to look outside of the scriptures to understand how God wants us to live our lives. We do not need to look outside of the scriptures for other explanations on how we are to interact with the world around us. His perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true words give us everything that we need to successfully navigate this life. And so in light of the power and the worth of God's sufficient word, we ought to value it more in our lives and live like it matters in our lives. You see, we might love God's word in the sense that we believe it is the truth. But do we value God's word by trying to know it as best as we can? Do we value God's word also by trying to apply it to our lives? Or even if you don't manage to do your Bible reading every day, are you merely coming into contact with God's word and then moving on with the rest of your day? Or are you taking the time to marinate in God's word and let it change you with the truth that it contains and respond to the convictions that it gives you? Now, I'll be honest, I don't live this out perfectly, but I am trying to make sure that I meditate on God's word more and take responsibility to be changed by it because God gave us his word to do a work in our lives. He didn't just give us his word so that we can read it, hear sermons from it, feel a little bit of conviction, feel a little bit of motivation, but then walk away relatively unchanged. And he gave us his sufficient word to help us be conformed into the image of his son. And he guarantees that he will do this work in our lives. So brothers and sisters, let us strive with the Spirit's help and a determination to please God to truly be people who live out our faith. Let us take responsibility for our walk before God and grow in respect to salvation so that we may experience the joy and pleasure of our God. Let's pray. Our God, we're grateful for um, this time that we have to spend time in your word in Psalm 19, just to hear of the great wonders that they proclaim, that you are God and that you exist. But we're also grateful for the fact that, uh, that your testimony of yourself does not end with the creation, but that you elaborate more about who you are and what you've done through your word, through your son, and through your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who strive to love you more, who strive to love your word more in our, in our lives so that you may be glorified. We pray that you would help us have this big picture view of who you are so that when we do hear the word, when we do recognize where we need to go, where we need to grow, where we need to change, that, um, that uh, you would ultimately be glorified as we do uh, all that you ask us to do. Thank you, Father, for this time. And it's in your sons that we pray. Amen.